0: You're listening to Tiger Country because sometimes you want a better view than the one you can get from being behind the knife. Sometimes you want your conversations to be more audible than the bleeding. Join Milos Bahavits, Joan Bose, and me, Rishi Kundi, as we talk to our guests about trauma surgery, critical care, powerboating, cats, mandolin, croissants, cats, TV shows, cats,
1: and state. All right, welcome back, everybody, to Tiger Country. My name is Dr. Milos Buhovats As always, I am joined by my colleague, Dr. Rishi Kundi. And this week, uh, we unfortunately could not be joined by Dr. Debose, who is uh, covering both trauma and vascular call. Uh, but it is my distinct pleasure to welcome a man uh, who I tormented for several years, um, in Utah, probably gave him his fair share of chest pain. Uh, Dr. Ram Narula, sir, welcome.
2: Thanks, Milish.
1: So let's let's dive right into this. Um, rib rib fractures are uh, a topic that uh, becoming more and more prevalent, and more and more people are becoming interested in in how to manage these things and how to manage them correctly. So you have a patient that comes in and you suspect they've got some some broken ribs, what are you doing to work these patients up?
2: Well, so, you know, first, uh, assuming that uh, we've established that they're stable um, and they've had their initial chest x-ray as part of their screening process, the, the next step for planning whether or not these patients uh, need or uh, rib fracture fixation would be to get a chest CT scan. That's not to say that every patient with rib fractures needs a chest CT. Um, The the plain film, I think, is reasonable to identify as a screening tool those patients who might need a subsequent chest CT. But I certainly wouldn't advocate that every patient with rib fractures um, that are non-displaced
1: necessarily needs a chest CT. And do you think that plain film radiographs usually are enough to make that distinction between which patients have displaced fractures and which patients do not?
2: Well, so it it kind of gets into the indications for rib fracture a little bit. So um, uh, rib fracture fixation a little bit, because just having some displaced rib fractures um, by themselves is not necessarily an indication in my book for rib fracture fixation. So if I'm looking at a plain film and I see a couple of minimally displaced or non-displaced rib fractures, that wouldn't lead me by itself to go ahead and get a chest CT in anticipation for um, plating. But there are a number of studies out there that indicate that initial chest X-ray is often underestimates the degree of rib uh, rib fractures and severity but having said that i I wouldn't routinely get a chest ct on patients with subtle rib fractures or those with without
1: at least bicortical displacement gotcha and you know when you look at when you're looking over those plane films and you're thinking about the overall picture of, of the patient in front of you are there specific locations that cause concern for concomitant injuries, and how do you go about addressing that?
2: Sure, the uh, you know the upper rib fractures, uh, as we know, are associated with more uh, a greater degree of uh, vascular injuries. So those patients certainly, based on the Denver criteria, would fall into a higher risk for a blunt ribovascular injury or great vessel injury, and and would dictate then getting a CT scan, a CT angio obviously lower mid uh, mid thoracic injuries are going to be associated with a greater degree of pulmonary contusion and and your lower rib fractures are going to be associated with potential injury to the uh, upper abdominal viscera so so those will those will dictate whether or not additional imaging is needed and also the degree of concern one has for pulmonary contusion blossoming You know, in addition to that, um, when you look at rib fractures that occur posteriorly versus anteriorly, um, there might be some consideration for blunt cardiac contusion, um, where you might need to go ahead and get an echo, depending upon what the physiology of the patient looks like. Um, And then also, uh, those posterior rib fractures um, may lead one to be more concerned about shoulder girdle injuries. Um, that can be quite quite significant and severe, but you'll usually see some element of that on the plain film and associated thoracic
0: spine injuries. So I'm sure that uh, you and a lot of our listeners can identify with one of my favorite uh, events in a uh, in a trauma call, which is the call from the outside hospital that is looking to transfer a patient because. They have a rib fracture and they don't have a thoracic surgeon, Mm. Um, which does bring up the question of what patients with rib fractures do you worry about? Who are the ones who go to the ICU uh, preemptively? Who are the ones that you watch closely and who are the ones that you just kind of send to the floor and say, we're going to give you some opioid analgesia for a while and, you know, make sure that you're pulling good volumes and probably send you home in a day or two.
2: Yeah, great question. Um, I think that um, as as we've reviewed the literature on rib fractures and their risk for subsequent pneumonia or needing um, intubation or higher level of care, I think that's a continues to evolve. Um, you know, at, at our institution, if you're over sixty five and you've got more than three rib fractures, you're Pretty likely to end up in our ICU at least for the first 24 hours. There was a recent study that examined a protocol like that and found that there was a significant degree of over triage when you when you use that by itself as a criteria for higher level of resources um, in ICU stay. That um, only a very small fraction of those individuals actually needed um, some intervention that. Um, that that was uh, necessary and um, would really benefit from an ICU stay uh, for monitoring. Uh, having said that, I think uh, it really does depend on your local institution as to whether or not you're going to put these patients into some form of higher level of care. Right, one ICU is not the same as another um, between hospitals, and so a step down unit or an ICU might be reasonable for a smaller hospital that doesn't have the level of resources to, to be able to, to manage those patients. To your question about the uh, absence of a thoracic surgeon or how many rib fractures or what other parameters you look at in order to accept a patient for transfer or need a higher, higher level of resources. For me, it's a combination of the degree of injury um, plus their physiology. So patients with flail chest, um, regardless of age, I think, warrant a higher level of care. Um, they're more likely to get into trouble. They're more likely to have pneumonia, more likely to need mechanical ventilation. Those patients are p- pretty easy to figure out that that they need, you know, they need a higher level of care. The patient that has one or two or three rib fractures, plus or minus some b- bicortical displacement, is the patient that I look at the other factors like age, comorbidities, um, to determine whether or not that patient should be transferred to a high level of care or spend time in the ICU. And then the patient that uh, uh, that might have a couple of rib fractures, plus or minus some displacement, that's where I think physiology plays more important role. And by physiology, I mean the parameters that would predict um, a higher risk for pneumonia, need for mechanical ventilation, like strength of cough uh, and incentive spirometry. So if those things are poor, I'm going to, I'm going to want to have that patient at a higher level of care. Uh,
0: and kind of to link the, the higher level of care and the attendant uh, injuries, what is the typical profile of chest trauma, rib fractures that make you concerned for in situ pulmonary thrombosis? And do you adjust your thromboprophylaxis uh, at all uh, in, in anticipation of that?
2: Yeah, so patients with a a high degree of thoracic injury burden, but uh, not only high uh, intrathoracic injury burden, but overall ISS are at higher risk for presenting with in situ pulmonary vascular thrombosis. Those patients, the adjustment is um, that we don't typically fully fully anticoagulate those patients. Um, It's not the same as the patient that comes in who three days later has evidence of pulmonary embolus, um, where where it's truly an embolic phenomenon as opposed to a thrombotic phenomenon. Those patients would fall under our prophylactic uh, uh, dosing regimen, just like any other patient. Um, And we wouldn't anticoagulate them right off the bat because this is a local inflammatory and thrombotic phenomenon where where we wouldn't uh, necessarily gain any benefit and perhaps incur some risk if we were to start them on anticoagulation.
0: All right, changing gears a little bit. Uh, What is your opinion on the the variable regional blocks, neuraxial, anesthesia? What is your go-to and what's kind of your second line? And then what's your last resort for, for analgesia for these patients?
2: Yeah, you know, this is another area that I think is pretty controversial and uh, continues to evolve. Um, I used to be of the mindset that um, epidurals really were the best way to manage these patients, and that's based on work by people like Eileen Bulger, who did one of the earliest randomized trials on um, on use of epidurals for patients with rib fractures, showing that There was a reduction in pneumonia um, when epidurals were used for analgesia. Um, Part of the reason why I'm starting to move now away from that is that um, at our institution, there's a significant reluctance to use Lovenox prophylaxis in in, um, those with epidurals. And as a result, I think it's contributing to some degree to our higher VTE rates. Um, in these patients. And so, um, while there's not convincing data to indicate that regional blocks make a difference in terms of pulmonary related outcomes, um I think they do certainly have a role in reducing pain for these patients, um, and it allows us to the luxury of VTE prophylaxis early on with with uh, anoxaparin. So, Um, we're, we're starting to move away a little bit from epidurals for these patients, but I still think that there is a role for them. It's, it's just that, um, we're struggling a little bit with the VTE prophylaxis, uh, in, in those patients. Um, I think, you know, the other, the other important aspect that, um, remains to be really proven through the literature is the use of liposomal, um, bupivacaine and, um, I routinely use that in when I am fixing ribs, um, but uh, but there really isn't any strong data to support that it reduces opioids uh, requirements in, in these patients.
1: Okay, so you know you you've got this patient in front of you, and you sort of alluded to it at the beginning about you know you. the the radiograph, the different things that you're taking into account on whom you would like to fix and who you're going to leave alone. So take me through that algorithm of uh, this is a patient with rib fractures that I'm going to do a fixation on and this patient doesn't require it.
2: Yeah, so I think uh, first we want to establish whether or not there's some other indication for mechanical ventilation that's going to prevent you from gaining real benefits of operative rib fracture fixation. And and by that, I mean significant TBI. So patients with significant TBI who are going to be uh, uh, trach bound um, may have a long neurologic recovery, not likely to gain any real benefit from rib fracture fixation. I, I do say that with a little bit of a caveat that there has been at least one study out there that's looked at rib fracture fixation in TBI patients with some suggestion of improvement in pulmonary-related outcomes. So while, while many studies exclude patients with TBI from rib fracture fixation, um, I, I wouldn't say that's a 100% uh, contraindication to rib fracture fixation, but it it is something that we need to consider strongly as to whether or not they're going to gain any benefit because it, it would be an operative intervention that you're going to want to undertake while they're in their early phase of TBI recovery. So you have to weigh the cons and uh, pros and cons for that. Barring that, uh, then the question becomes, uh, is the patient intubated for pulmonary needs uh, already? and is there uh, do we think that there's a benefit in fixation of those patients um, in terms of reducing their pulmonary related morbidity? Uh, I, I do believe that there is a benefit, um, although there is one recent trial that suggests that it may not uh, actually reduce mechanical ventilation needs. Um, fracture fixation um, has uh, uh, a less clear defined role in somebody who's already intubated. Um, uh, in terms of reducing their need for mechanical ventilation, uh, so in that in that patient group, um, I would still favor fixing those patients who have a flail chest, um, and uh, the reason for that is I think that there there is a subset of patients within those that group of patients who. Um, we may help to improve the shorten the length of mechanical ventilation and potentially reduce the risk for pneumonia and need for trach. Um, those patients that are not intubated um, is where I think uh, you have to you have to look at the nuances of, of that patient to make the decision for fixation. I still think those patients that are not intubated who have flail chest do benefit um, from fixation, um, and that's been borne out in a couple of randomized trials, um, but there is some, there is at least one randomized trial from Australia that suggests that perhaps six-month outcomes are, are really no different for those patients that get fixed versus not. Um, I think, though, that there are subsets of patients within those groups that would largely benefit. Um, the elderly patient population, I think, is the group of patients who stands to benefit the most from early rib fracture fixation. Um, And then the other factor that I would look at um, barring flail chest is whether or not these patients have bicortical displacement and more than one rib. Um, You and I published a study not too long ago that indicated that pulmonary-related outcomes are worse if you have bicortical rib fractures, even in the absence of flail chest. Um, I've yet to see a study that shows that fixing ribs um, when there's just bicortical displacement will improve pulmonary-related outcomes. Um, We tried to look at that with our data, and uh, I don't think that our sample size was sufficient enough to to determine that that there's a benefit. Anecdotally, I do believe that there's a benefit um, to pulmonary-related outcomes, as well as in terms of patients' early narcotic needs. Um, And so the the factors that I use to make that decision in patients who don't have flail chest but do have bicortical rib fractures um, are their degree of pain, their ability to mobilize uh, and um, uh, incentive spirometry and cough. And uh, with that, I lean again, heavily towards fixing patients who are older rather than younger um, to try to, to try to
1: reduce their pulmonary related morbidity. Always, always happy to ride your coattails uh, whenever I get the opportunity. Um, so you, you taught me how to, to do this. You taught me how to, to plate ribs, um, for, for our listeners out there that don't do this a lot or thinking about adding it into their practice. Could you briefly walk me through how you do one of your basic operations? Um, not necessarily a flail segment or a, a complex, uh, thoracic wall injury, but, you know, a, a couple of bicortically displaced ribs in an appropriate patient.
2: Sure. So um, after the patient's intubated, and I typically uh, do not do um, double lumen tubes for this unless I know that I need to be within the chest cavity to evacuate a hemothorax. Um, if if there's no other reason to be in the chest, then I'll usually just use single lung, uh, a single lumen tube. Uh, patients are positioned with the appropriate side up, and um, then after they're they're appropriately prepped, the um, the incision that I use is obviously the goal here is to try to be as minimally invasive as possible, and there are a few tricks to that. One is if the patient already has a chest tube um, in um, during their chest CT or prior to their chest CT, I use that as a landmark. Um, to help gauge where I need to center my incision. I spend a fair bit of time looking at the CT scan before going to the operating room to really figure out where the best location of the incision is in relation to other landmarks so that I'm not having to extend the incision and cause more pain. I think that's one of the real reasons why rib fracture fixation has uh, reemerged is that we changed the way in which we were doing it rather than the big full-on thoracotomy Incisions that were done in the 70s that led to rib fracture fixation to fall by the wayside. We've we've taken a less less invasive approach. Once uh, once I figure out where I'm going to make that incision, um, then getting through the latissimus, if that's the area that I'm in, um, whether or not I sacrifice the latissimus or I use muscle sparing depends on the overall body habitus of the patient um, and the location of the fractures. I usually don't, uh, I usually will sacrifice a small amount of, of the lentissimus if that will get me to where I need to be um, rather than doing a muscle bearing splitting type of uh, approach. If it's going to require, um, you know, three or four ribs to be fixed over a significant distance, then what I'll do is I'll split the muscle over two different sites to gain access, rather than sacrificing a large segment of the lilitisimus, um, in an effort to try to reduce pain. Uh, then, once I'm down to to the rib, um, I'll make a linear incision at, uh, proximal distal of fracture site using cautery uh, to divide the external uh, inter, intercostals and um, a periosteal elevator to preserve the periosteum but just clear the muscle uh, from the from the fracture site for several centimeters on either side of the fracture site. I'll reduce the fracture with cokers. And then um, your uh, whatever um, plating system you decide to use, um, I don't think that really one system is superior to another when you look at fixation. But I think the decision to, to whichever plating system you're going to use um, needs to needs to have bicortical fixation. I'm, I'm a pretty strong believer that if your scr- screws don't go bicortically, that you're, that you're running a risk that those screws are going to dislodge over time. And then one of the other principles that I think is important is having at least three, if not four, uh, fixation points on either side of the fracture site once you have reduction. Um, and it's important to um, ensure that if you have a comminuted fracture, that you have a long enough plate that spans that common site as well as having it um, extend beyond by at least three or four holes. So that's how I, I do my sort of basic uh, one to two displaced rib fractures.
1: Yeah, we we're not sponsored by anybody here at Tiger Country, but if we have anybody from the any of the rib fixation system folks listening, we'll, we'll be happy to take your money and and down on one side of the fence or another sure. um you know we didn't we didn't by the time I had left Utah we didn't use any intrathoracic plating do you think that's something that is coming that's going to change how we manage this or is it just a, a fancy yeah. thing going we go away
2: yeah so since you left Utah we've actually used an intrathoracic plates a couple of times um I think the you know, we've done. I've been doing rib fracture fixation for 20 years, and I've been able to do it without interthoracic plates. Um, I think their indication is pretty small. Um, there is there is some small advantage. Um, you know, you can get away with minimal incision, um, but they are finicky to use. It's technically um, a little bit more challenging. Um, so, and, and there are some benefits, you know, when you're working in behind the scapula, um, it can help to reduce the size of your incision and probably the amount of pain postoperatively. operatively um, So I, I would, I would reserve their use for the patient that has um, fractures that are close to the spine in behind the scapula um, where that's the predominant area that needs to be fixed. Now, having said that, I usually shy away from fixing the fractures that are near the spine and in behind the scapula simply because there's so much muscle in and around that area that those fractures don't tend to move very much. Right. And, and so if I'm fixing ribs, it's usually anterolateral, um, you know, third rib fracture or lower um, because the, the the amount of muscle up in and behind that area usually doesn't Um, uh, usually doesn't require fixation because those fractures don't move as much.
0: I want to take this opportunity to build on something that Miloš had said. Uh, Not only are we uh, eager to accept money to endorse a rib plating system, we are eager to accept money for really anything. (laughs) Uh, Crypto, (laughs) NFTs, timeshare condominiums. Uh, My endorsement is uh, for sale to the highest and then the second highest bidder. Uh, I've got a lot of time. So that having been said, uh, do you routinely do cryoablation or uh, a rib block? We mentioned a little bit about liposomal bupivacaine, but do you make some kind of effort at longer term pain control when you do your plating?
2: Yeah. I think that's a great question, and it's one that hasn't really been well studied. Um, I, I do not, um, I purposely avoid the neurovascular bundle and I leave it intact whenever I can, um, at least at the index operation. Um, and the reason why is um, it leaves p- people with an area of numbness, and some people find that pretty disturbing. So I don't, uh, I don't do that at the index operation. I do, however and when I counsel patients who have non-unions and have chronic pain, I will tell them that, uh, that I often will um, either purposely or um, inadvertently end up sacrificing their nerve um, when I'm dealing with a non-union um, and that they will have an area of numbness uh, in those situations. And if those if those patients aren't willing to accept that that's actually a a pretty good indicator that their pain isn't so severe that they actually need something to be done because the people that will often benefit from non-union repairs are those people that are so miserable that they'd rather have numbness than the pain that they're dealing with
0: so your fixation is done, uh, went successfully. How do you manage these patients? Once they're fixed, once they're plated, what is your kind of care pathway to get them out of the hospital uh, faster uh, than they would otherwise? Yeah. You progress them?
2: Yeah. So um, if they've had an epidural, I don't always place epidurals for these patients, as we talked about before, and sort of moving away from that. But certainly if they've had a flail chest, they'll likely have an epidural, um, then uh, post-operatively, uh, they'll also likely have a chest tube, depending upon whether or not they had modest hemothorax or not, um, or if I'm fixing a number of ribs, I'll, I will put a small chest tube in. I used to be a big believer in big chest tubes. Uh, even for hemothoraces, I've gone away from that. Um, you know, I don't use the 32 or 34 as much as I used to. I'll usually use a 24 or 28 um, uh, for these cases. And, uh, I also, when I first started doing these used to leave a, uh, submuscular drain for fear of hematoma that I've stopped doing for the last 10 years now, I haven't done that. Um, in order to get them out of the hospital sooner, um, you know, it's multimodal pain therapy, NSAIDs, muscle relaxants, opioids, um, uh, plus or minus, uh, um, uh, Neurontin, uh, and then, um, try to get the epidural out as quickly as possible. Um, because, um, our typical patient will, uh, our APS, uh, group likes to leave the epidurals in for four or five days. Um, if, if these patients don't need an epidural, I try to try very hard not to manage them with, with one, um, because that delays their, their hospital stay. Um, but, uh, that plus incentive spirometry and PEP therapy, early mobilization and multimodal pain therapy, um, is what we employ to try to get them out quickly. The other thing is, um, you know, having set criteria for chest tube removal. Once these patients have, um, their, their, um, output is less than 200 CCs, we get the chest tube out. Um, and, uh, and then, um, Usually within a day after the tube is out, that's when we discharge them, unless there's some other injuries that are keeping them in the hospital.
0: Uh, Do you, shifting away from fixation just for a moment, uh, Milos and I were having a little email discussion about this earlier today. Do you see a role, have you ever used a uh, dual lumen tube in the setting of asymmetric chest uh, chest wall and asymmetric pulmonary injury for independent uh, lung ventilation?
2: Yeah, um, those cases come up rarely, but I have uh, in the past several years ago. I've probably used it, I think, three times in my career. It's it's pretty rare that I've had to I've had to do it, but um, but yeah, uh, there are times where one lung is so badly injured and the other one is actually uninjured, where it makes sense to do it. Um, the problem is identifying the patient at the right time to make the switch in the ET tube, because by the, typically by the time we recognize that a double lumen tube would be beneficial with two separate ventilators, um, patients are already on hundred percent. were are on 20 a peep and inverse I to E and they're satting like 90% or less. And everybody's very gun shy about making that ET tube switch because they're going to arrest um, uh, in the time that it takes to make the switch. And if the switch doesn't go smoothly, it's problematic. So um, I have done it a few times uh, when, when we do make that switch um, it is like night and day when you're managing those patients, because now the good lung only is getting five of peep and the bad lungs getting 15. And, and now we can start
0: to auctionate them again. You know, one of the byproducts of, Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of uh, COVID-19, but my hospital had a bit of a run on the VV ECMO service. And one of the byproducts of of that is we all have a lot of familiarity with it now, including the trauma service and our threshold for putting trauma patients on VV has fallen. Uh, Insofar as we're all very familiar with, you know, I I cannulate the other vascular surgeons, cannulate, uh, and pretty much everyone who's in critical care here is adept at managing BV ECMO. Uh, do you have uh, that as a fallback for these chest wall patients? And if so, what are your criteria?
2: Yeah, so we've we've used it, and Milos can speak to this as well, we've used it sparingly in, in at our institution. It is available for us to use. Um, uh, our thoracic surgeons are the ones that primarily drive this, or the ones that are placing them at at our institution. Um, although that's soon to change, um, our acute care surgery group is going to be doing this more. Um, but yeah, the patient that we can't oxygenate and ventilate effectively with, uh, severe pulmonary contusions, um, is the patient with whom we're going to consult and get those cannula in. Um, so it is an option. Um, and, um, once we're, you know, once we're at the point where we're talking about nitric oxide or flow lan and looking at prone positioning um, in the trauma patient. Um, And we've gone, you know, we paralyzed, we're on inverse I to E. Those are the patients where, when our back is up against the wall, that will go to
0: VV ECMO. So coming back to rib plating, because we can't seem to get away from it. Um, You know, often we'll get these patients uh, and someone will bring up plating, but it's been 72 hours uh, since their injury. You know, they're out of that that optimal period. Um, do you ever fix, uh, you know, do rib fixation outside of that window? What is your window? What is yeah. your optimal period? And how far out will you fix these if the patient just isn't getting better? Yeah. So
2: I look at rib fracture fixation as having two real um, uh, roles there's the reduction in pulmonary related morbidity and then there's the treatment of the patient in terms of pain and recovery and those two things are distinct um, uh, although they come together in most patients they don't always they don't always and so the patient who has you know significant bicortical fractures um, who's outside that seventy two or ninety six hour window? I, I will plate people readily within ninety six hours. Um, <clears throat> but the patient that's outside that window, in fact, I had a patient just uh, last month, forty um, something year old gentleman who was five or six days out, still having popping, clicking, wasn't fixed on um, um, you know, within that seventy two hour window. Because he was, you know, pulling okay on his IS and was moving around okay, but really was kind of stuck in terms of his mobility and and had a lot of popping and clicking that was really quite painful. And so even though he was out of that 96-hour window or 72-hour window, whichever whichever window you choose to believe, um, I elected to fix him. And then lo and behold, two days later, he's out of the hospital whereas he was on a bunch of narcotics before fixation, wasn't able to participate in PT, was having challenges in, in moving. Um, so I think that's where the there's the physiology, but then there's also the limitation of the rib fractures in terms of mobility and and pain management uh, where those two things can be separated in select patients.
1: Yeah, it's... <clears throat> I don't know that, as you've mentioned several times, I don't know that we we have all the answers. It's it's a an evolving topic that yourself and, and other people are trying to figure out. As this does become more prevalent, as rib fixation becomes a technique that's in the armamentarium of every trauma surgeon, general surgeon, thoracic surgeon, that means that we're gonna be seeing some uh, complications uh, as well. So can you talk to us a little bit about what are some of the complications that we should expect to see and and manage, and what are we going to do about them?
2: Yeah. um, So the first thing I think that's noteworthy is that the complication rates that are are directly attributable to fixation are actually pretty low. Um, But when they occur, they're quite they're quite a nuisance. Um there's uh, you know, the initial I would break this up into different phases. There's the initial immediate complications that relate to any surgery and infection and bleeding. And and you can have bleeding as a complication from this, uh, you know, if you uh, just like any other surgery. Um, I think it's important to recognize that um um hematomas, uh uh, and the management of post-op hematomas in this, in this patient population deserves some special attention because um, they can be quite painful, and uh, that sort of uh, presence of those early post-operative hematomas can basically negate a lot of what you've tried to do in fixing their ribs. So um, making a decision as to taking a patient back to the operating room if they've got a significant submuscular hematoma or an intrathoracic hematoma, Um, uh, is important. Uh, I think you've got to take those patients back and drain them, leave drains um, where appropriate. If it's an intrathoracic hematoma, then, you know, appropriate chest tube management versus going back and doing an evacuation with an early VATS. If it's a retained hemothorax um, where your chest tubes are ineffective, I, I think is important to get those patients back on track early. Fortunately, plate-related infections is pretty low, um, on the order of less than one percent. Um, I've over over doing this now twenty years. I've only had a handful of patients that I've had to take back because they've had an infection um, and required plate removal. Um, that's still something that does come up from time to time, and so it's important to recognize that. Um, just as with any orthopedic procedure, if you have or or any procedure that involves a foreign body, um, you've got to remove those plates if there's an associated infection. Um, it won't clear otherwise. Um, so plate infection is another complication. and then the the other complication that's important to recognize is um, plate failure. Um, and plate failure can take uh, can take the appearance of dislodgement of screws. To actual plate breakage, and when you're dealing with that kind of a situation, you have to then think about what the reason for that failure was. Was it because the plate wasn't placed appropriately? Did you did you only get um, uh, a you know a corner of the rib when you put your screws in versus the meat of the rib? Did you not have long enough fixation across the fracture site? Did um, did your screws not go full thickness, and therefore they weren't by truly bicortical? cortical? Um, and also, um, what is the nature of the bone that you're placing this in? And do you have an osteopenic bone that um, that in which the screws won't hold? And I think that those are important factors to consider when you're trying to figure out how you're going to manage that complication, because if you just go back in and do the same thing, you're going to have the same result.
1: Yeah, it's 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 one of those things that we, you know, you you taught me. We we went through everything pretty rigorously, so that when it was time to fly the coop and and do the stuff by myself, you know, myself, all the all the residents fellows would have uh, an algorithmic way of of approaching these things. And if Dr. Debose was here, he'd be relieved that we we made it through the. The meat and potatoes of our discussion on rib fractures, because really, this is this is his favorite part—the random questions where we we get to find out a little bit more about the man behind the legend. So, Doctor Narula, are you ready for your random questions?
2: Right, my random, my five questions, my five fast questions.
1: <laughs> we'll, we'll limit it to three. All right, good. Um, so, American football or handball? as I would call it, uh, baseball, basketball, uh, all sports inferior to ice hockey. Uh, tell us why that's true and what you love about it so much.
2: All right. So we'll go through this systematically since that's the way we do things. Basketball. Okay. Very little physical contact. There's no, there's the elbows, you know, that's, that's not really physical contact. Okay they they don't they don't leave bruised um there's no dislocation of joints the ball doesn't hurt if you get hit by it um so basketball out um football yeah there's real physical contact there but far too much padding and um it the the front five people that are protecting the quarterback there's no athleticism there it's just straight just straight meat weight right um then uh, what? What were the other ones? Soccer? No, we didn't even talk about baseball. Soccer.
1: Ba- well, baseball. I, I didn't. I yeah. didn't. I assumed that you have some negative things to say, so I left it off the list. <laughs> All right, baseball. No athleticism there.
2: I don't know that there's anything more to say about that. Um, so you look at the speed of hockey. Okay, speed, kinetic force, as well as the intellect that's required to play the game. Where you're trying to harmonize five people against five people to move um, something that's essentially like cement when you get hit by it, um, you take all those elements and then you take the speed of the game. Um, it truly requires um, athleticism and intellect to to play that game. Not to mention balance, and you have to be able to fight. So, you know, how can you compare? That sport, to you know, to any of the others. So I have a
0: follow-up question. Um, Um, What is your favorite team, and why is it the Red Wings? (laughs) Are you kidding me?
1: I I don't think that even deserves an answer. He's a Jets fan.
2: Yeah, I'm from Winnipeg. I'm Canadian, so my my team is my home team. It's the Winnipeg Jets. Who? Just, uh, basically last night beat the LA Kings six to four. It was a terrible game though. They shouldn't have won.
1: Doesn't matter. Winning is winning.
2: Winning is winning. It's still a
0: W. Yes. sir. They're also not giving adequate consideration to curling, but we're going to leave that
1: there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sport on ice. He does like his sports on ice. Yep. Um, so Utah, you, you've been at Utah now for, uh, for a while. Um, uh, the state obviously is very upset that I left, but it is one of the the hidden gems of, uh, the United States. Where is your favorite place to go in Utah? And if you had a first time visitor to Utah, where would you tell them to go? Um, yeah, so I, I think
2: my favorite place to go in Utah is, um, uh, if they enjoy hiking, um, the, uh, the hiking in utah is, is really incredible um and there's a specific set of trails that i really enjoy that um are down by the uh, uh um, big cottonwood and and that set of trails is really is is really nice um there's a good elevation there um it's it's um dotted by uh streams and and rivers, uh, and um, and there's some lakes in the area as well. That when you get up there, the view is just the view is just phenomenal. So, you know, and then there's of course things like Moab, which uh, you know, which have some breathtaking landscapes, uh, landscapes as well. So, those are some of the areas that I would tell people to go to.
1: Okay, yeah, be- beautiful. You can't go wrong pretty much anywhere in Utah. Um, Not a lot of people know that you are, you're quite the Renaissance man. You you have, you have skills beyond the trauma OR in the hospital. You can, you can build from, from what I recall, pretty much anything. Um, So for our listeners, any tips on how to build, for example, an outdoor barbecue and any deep regrets about letting me help you do that?
2: Well, that's actually what I was going to say. Is that one of the one of the tips is to enlist a resident who's willing to work for for uh, a glass of wine or a, a finger of scotch. So if you can find somebody that'll do that, yeah, you've got it made. My latest project, if you're interested, is um, I'm building a um, a bar shelf out of uh, copper plumbing. So I'm. Uh, and then I'm planning on putting uh, some live live edge wood as shelves on, on the structure. So more to come on that.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Narula for joining us and uh, helping uh, get rid of some of the mysteries of taking care of rib fractures. Um, as always, a huge thank you to uh, Dr. Kundi for joining us. We uh, we miss our head honcho, Dr. Debose, but he's he's doing his best covering trauma and vascular uh, for the city of Austin. I'm sure we'll catch up with him next time. Uh, thank you to everybody and to all our listeners, and we will see you next time on Tiger Country. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Tiger Country. On behalf of Milos Bahavitz, Joe DeBose, and myself, thanks for joining us. And just in case, this doesn't count toward your CMEs, and please don't use this to study for your in-service. We'll be back soon.